the chancellor has been telling of us whether or not the West has lost it, so I thought that I would um, go backwards and talk about how the West got it, or at least that part of the story of how the West got it um, that happened between 3,000 and 1,500 years ago. Now, we are always being told that we should not be Europocentric, and so I might begin by pointing out that the very word West is itself Europocentric. If you started in Japan, say, or China, uh, if you're starting in Shanghai, then California would be uh, an eastern land. Uh, and in fact, I think if we think where we are looking from when we talk about the West, it is, this is our, in itself one of our inheritances from the ancient world. We are starting from somewhere like Italy or Greece. Uh, everything west of there is the West, and everything east of there is the Near East or the Middle East uh, or the Far East. But this somewhat curious term, um, West, I think, uh, comes into being uh, partly because we can no longer talk about Europe because of the curious phenomenon of the uh, past two or 300 years uh, in which America has become more and more powerful. Uh, North America clearly the uh, dominant uh, political, economic, military, and cultural force uh, of the past century, and yet, in another way of looking at it, a provincial uh, offshoot of European civilization. Uh, both, both these uh, things, I think, are paradoxically uh, oppositely true. Um, but Europe itself, the idea of Europe, uh, is itself uh, Europocentric. Uh, there is no such continent. I mean, there are continents such as North America, South America, Australasia, and so on. Uh, but Europe is merely uh, the western promontory of the great Asian landmass. Um, the idea that there is a continent called Europe uh, derives from the ancient Greeks and from their indeed correct perception uh, that uh, that cleft in the great landmass uh, formed by the Bosphorus, the Sea of Marmara, and the Dardanelles is indeed uh, one of the great historical pivots, um, one of the hinges uh, on which history has turned. Uh, but uh, in fact, there is no such continent at all. And whether we should be thinking in terms of continents uh, or in rather different terms, uh, I will consider in just a moment. But let me uh, throw into the stew a, a very uh, familiar observation, uh, which is that um, the West and its culture and civilization uh, have uh, three basic roots uh, in antiquity, um, Greece, Rome, and Palestine. As Cardinal Newman put it, Athens plus Jerusalem equals Rome, uh, proving very satisfactorily that the Church of Rome must be the true church. Um, one variant uh, on this view, um, uh, particularly uh, popular with the Romantics and throughout the 19th century, uh, is that the credit should go above all uh, to the Greeks, and that there's something very uh, unique and special about them in the entire history of the world. Um, uh, Mr. Shelley of Univ uh, put it this way in uh, 1819. We are all Greeks. Our laws, our literature, our religion, our arts have their root in Greece. But for Greece, Rome, the instructor, the conqueror, or the metropolis of our ancestors would have spread no illumination with her arms, 
and we might still have been savages and idolaters, or what is worse, might have arrived at such a stagnant and miserable state of social institution as China and Japan possess, which does show that things can change. Uh, but, uh, or one might compare uh, a little later John Stuart Mill's uh, claim that even as an event in English history, the Battle of Marathon is more important than the Battle of Hastings, because this was the point that determined that the Persians would not take over Europe and that Greek civilization and culture could develop. Well, this is going to be broad brush, splashy stuff of the kind that uh, dons don't do very often, so uh, I hope you will be uh, indulgent. But let me do a bit of uh, large geopolitics. Plato has Socrates say in one of his dialogues that we are like frogs sitting round a pond. Now, I think one can understand this in two ways. One can think about the Mediterranean as a whole, or one could think uh, more, slightly smaller scale, about the Aegean. Because Greek civilization, the Greek world, was essentially an Aegean world. What matters is not really the landmass that we now think of as Greece, but is what is happening around all sides uh, of the Aegean. Uh, these Greeks are sea peoples. Um, Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, came from the eastern Aegean, either from what is now Turkey or, or from the islands uh, just to the west of it. Um, the origins of Western rationalism, uh, the thinkers, particularly around Miletus, again, happening what is now, uh, now Turkey. Uh, the Greeks spread themselves in settling colonies um, along the Mediterranean as far west as southern France and Catalonia. Uh, they spread themselves um, up to the Black Sea, around the Black Sea, Pontus. Uh, but they never crossed the great mountain ranges that separate the north of Europe from the south. They didn't get across the Cévennes or the Alps uh, or the Carpathians and into uh, northern Europe. Uh, later uh, in their history, Alexandria in Africa uh, became their greatest city, uh, both in terms of population uh, and uh, uh, in terms of cultural influence. Um, Pergamum and Antioch were, uh, in the second, first century BCs, uh, the uh, most important other Greek cities in what we would think of as Asia. Uh, and later still, of course, uh, Byzantium, where conventionally Europe and Asia meet. They were um, sea peoples. And if one thinks of the Roman Empire itself, the Romans were the first and the last people to unite the whole of the Mediterranean littoral from the Straits of Gibraltar round to uh, the eastern Mediterranean to Lebanon and Palestine uh, and back as far as Tangier, all uh, under a single empire. No one had done it before, no one has done it since. Uh, but, but, uh, so it was essentially a Mediterranean empire. Uh, of course, eventually, uh, the Romans did conquer the whole of Gaul. And for reasons that I've never really been able to understand, they spent some effort and energy in conquering the remote, romantic, exotic, pluvious island of Britannia, or at least the southern part of it. Uh, but for 
hundreds of years, they had Britannia, and nothing important ever happened there, and no notable person ever came out of it. Why they bothered, uh, I'm not sure. Essentially, it remained a Mediterranean empire. Now, one, in one way, it seems natural, therefore, to regard the Mediterranean as a natural unit. But in another way, it's not. One crucial fact that's been supremely important uh, in European history, perhaps even in world history, is the fact that the whole line of the northern Mediterranean from uh, Gibraltar to the Lebanon, there are large mountains quite close to the sea. So you're pushed down on the sea, it's difficult to get inland uh, and across uh, into northern Europe. It's, it's an interesting consideration too that if you look at the map of Rome's European empire at its greatest extent, the early second century uh, AD, or a bit before that, or a bit after. And if you look at the greatest extent of the Soviet empire um, uh, when I was young, um, between them, they cover just about the whole of Europe uh, other than Scandinavia, and there's remarkably little overlap between them. And that tells us something about the natural geopolitics uh, of, of Europe. Now, uh, if we go to the northeastern end of, Anata of, of the Mediterranean, uh, we find the great landmass of Anatolia. And here was one of the great pressure points uh, of history, because Anatolia is a great, high, dusty, Asiatic, landlocked landmass. Uh, and the great uh, empires uh, coming out of Asia the Medes and Persians, the Seljuk Turks, the Ottoman Turks, they gradually conquer uh, each one of them, this great landmass, and then they come up against the Aegean. And to this day, and if you travel out of Cappadocia or Cilicia, and you come across this great Asiatic landmass, and you break through the enormous mountains of the Taurus, uh, rising to 10 or 12,000 feet, and get down uh, to the Aegean, you suddenly find yourself in what feels like a completely different world. Suddenly you feel that you're in Greece. So that the eastern littoral uh, of the Aegean, all its natural connections look westwards across the waters to the islands uh, and to mainland Greece, Achaea. Uh, but as a land mass, uh, of course, that mass lies eastwards. And that has, was the cause of wars and tensions for thousands of years, of the conflict between the Greeks and Persians, between uh, the Turks and the Ottomans, uh, a problem solved only uh, in, the, uh, early in the 1920s in the most brutal imaginable way uh, with the expulsion of the Greeks, the exchange of populations, uh, and the total removal, of a, virtually total removal of a Greek population uh, from Anatolia and a Turkish population uh, from the lands further west. Well, the West has twice lost it. There are two uh, dark age periods uh, in the history of this continent, um, between the Mycenaean Empire uh, and the rise again of Greece, a period of dark ages during which, among, among other things, they managed to lose what you would think was a vital piece of technology uh, that you would never lose once you've got it, the art of writing, uh, and was the dark ages of Europe 
a um, thousand and a bit more years ago. Now, uh, historians are increasingly stressing those or claiming that these dark ages weren't as dark as all that. There's um, been known for some time that there was much more continuity in the later dark age uh, than used to be supposed, and this is, uh, archaeology is increasingly suggesting that's the case in the early dark age of Greece too, but that the wall, there were periods of re retreat uh, and advance, I think, can hardly uh, be denied. So after emerging out of the Greek Dark Age, we, we had this spectacular and extraordinary phenomenon of the first Greek poet, or the second Greek poet. Um, the earliest Greek poets are Homer and Hesiod, and the scholars still debate about which is the earlier. Um, but most of the Greeks themselves believed uh, that Homer was the first. And right at the beginning of Greek civilization, is this quite extraordinary poem or pair of poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And to begin with something uh, so enormously sophisticated remains one of the great uh, surprises of all uh, literary history. And I think it's also significant that the heroes of these two epics are people of intelligence. Um, Odysseus is a man of, of wiles, a man of many ways, and that's why he is able to triumph in the Odyssey. And in the Iliad, Achilles is not only the greatest warrior, but he's a man of high intelligence. Now, this isn't obvious. I mean, if you think of the Nibelungenlied, I mean, the point about Siegfried, I mean, the hero of, of German myth, is that he's stupid. That's the point. I mean, he's ignorant. He, he's never seen a woman. So when he sees the first woman he's ever seen in his life, who happens to be his aunt, he immediately falls in love with her. Uh, uh, he doesn't know what fear is. You know, he is a man without experience. He is a... Uh, uh, sort of wholly innocent. And Achilles is not like that. He is the only poet in the Iliad. He is the only musician uh, in the Iliad. Uh, he is the wittiest man in the Iliad. He says that he was taught by his father to be both a speaker of words and a doer of deeds. So the I idea um, that heroism includes intelligence uh, and wit and even uh, aesthetic sense uh, is built uh, into uh, Greek uh, civilization of the earliest moment that we can see it. Now, between the 8th century and the 5th, uh, the Greeks go through what I call a process of separation. They discover that things that you might think were the same are different. They discover that fact is different from fiction, that poetry has different functions from prose, that philosophy is different from science, and that philosophy is usefully separated uh, from um, theology, uh, and history is different from myth. Now, those things may seem extremely obvious, but, but they aren't, in fact. If we look at the Iliad, uh, Homer uh, is a historian as well as a poet, and he sees no distinction between these two things. At a memorable moment, he calls upon the muses, and we think this is going to be some particularly poetic passage. It isn't. It's the catalog of the ships when he just lists all the ships. And he calls upon the muses because, as he says, you know everything, you are present, and we know nothing. The muses are there because they provide information. They are, as it were, the historical source, except that Homer sees no distinction between myth and history. It's all one. And if we look at 
um, Hesiod's uh, Theogony, a poem about the origin of the gods and the uh, origin of the world, is he doing theology uh, or is he doing science, explaining how physically the world came into being, how sky um, produced earth and so on. We can't, he doesn't see a distinction. Uh, and gradually, the Greeks somehow worked out that these things were different. Uh, much of this was done by what we now call the pre-Socratic philosophers, um, uh, mostly in Western Anatolia, and particularly around uh, Miletus from the seventh century BC onwards for a, a, a couple of centuries. Uh, and when we look at some of them, it, it is difficult to say at some point whether they are scientists, um, all the world is made of water. No, it isn't. It's made of four elements. It's made of uh, water, air, earth, and fire. Or, or are they um, philosophers? But gradually they work out that these are two different forms of inquiry, um, that trying to understand um, the natural world, physical science, and trying to understand the gods, uh, and trying to do ethics, uh, that these are, are different operations. And finally, Socrates made the distinction absolute, um, complete separation between uh, natural science uh, and, uh, and, um, and, the, and doing uh, philosophy. In the fifth century, with remarkable speed, history writing, as we understand it, was invented, I think, essentially just by two people. Uh, the first of those was the man who was always regarded as the father of history, uh, Herodotus, again, um, coming from what is now Turkey, Halicarnassus, on the eastern side of the Aegean. And he made extraordinary leaps forward. For the first time, a work of art was composed in prose. It's the, the, if you wanted to write something artistic before that, it was always in verse. But this is a work, among other things, which is a literary masterpiece. So it establishes an idea which we've never lost, that the very best history is also a literary achievement and the greatest historians are literary masters. Uh, but he also established ideas of method, ideas of evidence. Uh, he observed there are different kinds of evidence with different degrees of reliability. There's what you've seen, there's what you've read, and what you have been told, and you assess those things differently. He also put the idea of causation uh, into history. He begins by saying that famous things should not be forgotten, and that's why he's writing history. But also, he's going to describe the causes why the Greeks and Persians fought one another. So there he is inventing the idea that history is just not uh, a narrative of events, but it is analytic. Uh, it tries to explain, and it tries to understand. He also uh, distinguished between myth and history. He said, you know, if you're Thinking mythically, uh, you can say that the Helen was the cause of the Trojan War, but if we are being uh, historians, we set that aside and we look for the causes uh, somewhere else. It is an extraordinary leap forward. And then in the next generation, uh, Thucydides uh, uh, went even further. Um, he distinguished two levels of causation the uh, immediate causes of things and the deeper causes. So uh, there is an increase in sophistication in, in the kind of analysis you do. Um, and he also completely and finally excluded the divine from historical accounts. Uh, he excluded anecdote and he uh, um, speaks rather acidly of someone unnamed or unnamed people, he's presumably thinking of Herodotus, 
um, who tell stories, and isn't that attractive? People may not find my own history so attractive because I've excluded the storytelling element. And indeed, in Herodotus, you do get, particularly the early parts of Herodotus, you get stories like Gyges and his magic ring that made you invisible and so on, which is not the sort of thing we expect to find in academic history today. Uh, but there's absolutely none of that whatever uh, in Thucydides. Um, uh, the, the gods as, as causes are excluded entirely. Everything must be explained in human terms. And with extraordinary uh, intensity and depth, he analyzes the effect on, uh, on, on character and polity um, of, of war and the corrosive effects uh, it, it has on uh, human behavior. The fifth and fourth centuries see the great uh, triumph of philosophy too. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be a, a philosopher, but uh, the achievements of Plato and Aristotle I will leave to uh, speak for themselves. Um, philosophy gets off to a fantastic start uh, in, in the fourth century BC, and sometimes it can seem that only it's only in the last 2,300 years that progress has been a little slow. And I suspect myself that there's something in the religion of the Greeks, too, that, that, that helped them with this uh, um, intellectual advance. Uh, it is that Greek religion remained so stubbornly primitive. You really couldn't uh, get it to make good intellectual sense, and that gave you a kind of freedom you uh, had to work around it. You know, contrast that with the kind of history writing in the Old Testament. Um, uh, here is what seems to me at least a much more sophisticated uh, idea of religion uh, and, and one uh, that has lasted much longer. Um, but the Jews could never really um, separate doing theology from doing history. They couldn't make that final separation uh, and uh, the Greeks did it. There is a famous notion that uh, the fifth century BC in Greece, above all in Athens, marks a kind of acme of, of uh, human civilization. Um, this was, uh, again, particularly favored um, by the Romantics in, in the 19th century. Uh, and I can, again, uh, cite uh, Shelley, uh, again in 1819, the human form, he said, and the human mind attained to a perfection in Greece which has impressed its image on those faultless productions whose very fragments are the despair of modern art and has propagated impulses which cannot cease through a thousand uh, manifest or imperceptible operations to ennoble and delight mankind until the extinction of the race. And he describes the, uh, the modern Greeks as descendants of those glorious beings whom the imagination almost refuses to figure to itself as belonging to our kind. Well, that is uh, somewhat OTT uh, even for me, but uh, it's an extreme expression of this kind of sense that there was something uh, unique about the Greeks. I mean, the, 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 the counter view uh, is that we should look at this as another of ancient civilizations. You know, we should look to Mesopotamia and Egypt and further, of course, beyond to uh, India and China. W was there something um, uh, uniquely uh, brilliant about them, or even if not that, was there something unique? 
Well, of course, there was one famous thing that was unique, the extraordinary experiment uh, in Athens of um, mass democracy, of a whole citizen body um, taking an equal part uh, in, uh, in the, the political operation. Uh, there was a prime minister. Uh, he was, oh, they didn't call him that, but there was. Uh, he was elected by lot, and he served for one day. Uh, it's an extraordinary system. Um, now, of course, people have chipped away at the glories of uh, Athenian democracy. Um, they have pointed out quite correctly that of course, it excluded women, children, slaves, and immigrants. So it was only a minority of the population that actually take part. Uh, but it is not wrong to say that this was democracy in the true sense, in the sense where the, what the Greeks meant by it. I mean, Tocqueville saw the point when he wrote uh, Democracy in America in the 1830s. Um, he, um, of course, knew uh, that in some respects, um, the United States was as unequal a society as existed in the world. A large number of Americans were held in chattel slavery. Uh, and, of course, uh, women and uh, children were also excluded. But the point was that there was a mass citizen body, and anybody who was a citizen could play uh, an equal part. Uh, the town meeting was very important. The, uh, the, uh, the weakness and dimness of presidents, in his view, was a wonderful thing about the American system and a great uh, virtue. Presidents were, were too uh, unintelligent and too weak institutionally to do much, and that was good. He would not have regarded um, America today uh, as democratic in the same sense. Uh, we've heard the chancellor just uh, uh, a few uh, minutes ago uh, saying what democracy is. Well, Pericles, I have to say, would not have agreed with that at all. Uh, they, we associate democracy with um, political freedom, uh, uh, various kinds of liberty and tolerance. That wasn't their idea. Democracy is about the exercise of power, democratia, the people exercising the power. And Tocqueville and Pericles and Thucydides would have agreed uh, that what we are living in is a kind of mixed constitution, probably more oligarchic than democratic. Uh, it's a different conception of democracy from our modern conception uh, of democracy. But, uh, and it has very little concern for the private realm. Uh, you may be surprised if you don't know the um, famous funeral speech of Pericles uh, put into his mouth by Thucydides uh, uh, in how collectivist it is. Uh, there's no notion that uh, democracy means that you should be left alone um, uh, and not you know, um, be able to do your own thing and enjoy the private realm. There's, there's, it, indeed, it, it argues against that. It, it is a very remarkable experiment. It remains one of the most remarkable human uh, experiments in human politics. But in one respect, uh, it didn't have any uh, influence. Again, the chancellor has talked about remarkable polities like the Chinese, which are not going to be models, which are not going to be imitated. And that, I think, has essentially been true of, of the Athenian experiment. But the, the Greeks, through their actual politics uh, and through their philosophers and intellectuals, gave us ways of thinking about politics, uh, of, of being self-critical about institutions, which I think have been a, a permanent and important part of, of the Western inheritance. The Greeks learned from Egypt uh, a bit uh, and from the Near East uh, uh, quite a lot. 
um, modern scholarship had been in emphasizing increasingly how the Greeks didn't come from nowhere and that they took a lot um, from other peoples, especially um, from the Near East. But Plato tells a fascinating story uh, in one of his dialogues. Uh, Solon, uh, in exile from Athens, went to Egypt, and there he met uh, an old priest. And the priest said to him, Solon, Solon, you Greeks are always children. Uh, you are always young in your hearts, and you have no knowledge that is old or hoary with age. And I think that's a fascinating story because it is, of course, a Greek story. It tells how the Greeks saw themselves. Uh, they immensely admired Egypt. How could you not? This astonishing uh, immemorial civilization of great power and beauty and endurance. But they felt themselves to be different. They felt themselves to be new. This was, they were in a world that was changing, rather different from the Romans, who rather liked to emphasize the antiquity of their institutions. And there is, I think, think something unusual about uh, classical uh, Greek civilization, which I, I think the, um, the, the Romantics and the Victorians were right uh, to see. There was a kind of quest for perfection. If you look at the sculptures of Old Kingdom of Egypt, around about 2500 BC, they seem extraordinarily fine and humane, um, these half-naked bodies, the torsos superbly modeled. Um, the fifth century almost seems to be there, and it doesn't somehow quite happen. Uh, the Egyptians went on with their uh, immemorial, unchanging, more or less unchanging civilization uh, for another 2,000 years at least, uh, arguably uh, for another 3,000. But the, the Greeks um, starting um, uh, from an um, archaic form of sculpture, refined their forms and, and, until they found a, a kind of perfection. I, I don't think it's, um, it's sentimental or anachronistic uh, to think in that way. And if you think about their architecture, they took a small number of forms, rather limited forms, because they were based on trabeated architecture, that's to say sort of the architecture of the post and lintel, and uh, developed them into a kind of perfection. So the Renaissance and since has inherited the notion that there are five orders of classical architecture and only five. So you get that sort of thing perfected in the Parthenon. And then there is a problem. What do you do then? There's really nowhere to go. And that, I think, was a weakness uh, in, in, in Greek civilization, that once you've perfected certain forms, what do you do next? It was not really not until the Roman period, partly through the invention of new technologies like the arch uh, and concrete architecture, the concrete vault and so on, that sort of marvelously uh, new forms of architecture were developed. Now, some of those um, may have been produced by people who actually were Greeks. Um, a, a Trajan um, architect was Apollodorus of Damascus, uh, who was certainly the architect of um, some of Trajan's um, biggest public works and may well have been the, the architect of the Pantheon, the, the great work of that date which survives. And of course, um, Byzantium and the extraordinary uh, architectural brilliance of that period uh, is, is, is a Greek operation. But of course, something I'm coming on to say at this point, I mean, the difference between Greeks and Romans in some ways doesn't matter very much. If one goes back to the fifth century for a moment, there is, I think, an extraordinary disjunction between, at this point between their literature 
uh, and their visual art, and maybe, you know, bet bet between uh, their intellectual operations, too, because these other operations are, are looking at kind of perfection within limits and, and um, reason and, uh, and, uh, the, and the rational, the ego, as it were, of the, of, the, of the human psyche. And those romantics and Victorians were like to see the whole of um, Greek culture as extraordinarily unified uh, as a totality. I can't quite see it like that because their literature seems to me utterly different. This is the period of Greek tragedy with its with sort of extremity in it and sort of wildness and irrationality. And the comedy of this period was surreal, anarchic, bawdy. It seems to be tremendously different. This is something I can't explain. I just point it out to you, I think, um, partly because of, of all the literature of the ancient world. It is Greek tragedy, uh, which has had the biggest influence um, in the past 100 years, partly through Nietzsche and Freud and um, uh, people like that. But uh, not only. I think it is still... Um, for better or worse today, it's the part of ancient literature which sp still speaks um, to modern people most uh, vividly. The fourth century all sees the rise of Macedon, um, then Alexander, and the Greeks expanding uh, to conquer uh, eastwards. Uh, Alexander's uh, empire then fragmenting rapidly into three. So that here's a huge increase in the Greeks' political power, but. What interests me, rather, is that how it increased its soft power, to use a term which they didn't have, at the same time. Greek culture became something of which everyone wants a part. To use a terrible modern world, everybody could become a stakeholder uh, in uh, Greek culture. Um, so all the other civilizations that came in contact with the Greeks fell under their spell. Um, um, you know, there's no Lydian... Uh, literature. There's no Carthaginian literature. Um, these people, once they sort of got cultured, they, they wrote in Greek. Even uh, the Greeks, the, most, uh, the, the Jews, the most resistant to Greek influence, it happened to them too. Um, of course, there was the whole of the, the old, what we call the Old Testament was uh, translated into, uh, into, into Greek and the Apocrypha and the New Testament, of course, are classical Greek texts uh, written in Greek in the first place. So, um, and if one was to say, who, was the, who, who is the single most influential classical author? Well, perhaps it's an unanswerable question, but there's a serious case uh, to be made for a few short works written by a Hellenized Jew called Paul of Tarsus. The first Romans gentleman who turned to literature, turned to history, because that's what a gentleman wrote. Uh, and naturally, of course, they wrote in Greek. Uh, even uh, in the, the heyday of Rome, uh, Cicero uh, points out that he needs his glorious deeds to be celebrated by poetry in Greek because um, Latin is a provincial language um, used not even over the whole of Italy, whereas Greek is uh, the world language. In the later part of the third century BC, um, Someone from Magna Graecia, Greater Greece, the south of Italy, Quintus Ennius, started writing poetry. Uh, he was trilingual. He spoke Oscan, Latin, and Greek. If he had written his poetry in Greek, he would have had a world audience. But for some reason or other, he chose to write in Latin, and the Romans regarded him as their first great poet. Now, 
One view of this is that this is one of the most momentous decisions ever made. It meant that the Romans had a literature. Uh, and you know, they might not have done. They might, like all these other peoples who came in the contact with the Greeks, go on writing in Greek. <coughs> but as it was, they, um, they developed a superb literature of their own instead. I have to say I cannot quite believe this story. I think in the, one way or another, a Roman literature would have survived. Um, the Romans become the first people, as were, to build their, their civilization entirely on an earlier one uh, to, to an extraordinary uh, extent, um, so that they take all their mythology virtually from all their subject matter from Greece. Every single line of classical Latin verse, every single one, is written in a Greek meter, uh, not in a native Italian meter, although the Greek and Latin languages are rather different, and in many ways these meters de de devised for the Greek language don't suit the Latin language very well. Um, so in, uh, the whole of uh, Roman uh, culture is utterly uh, suffused by Greeks and uh, Greek forms in their architecture and sculpture and, uh, and, and so on. It, it's both like and unlike um, uh, the modern American development, I think. Um, the great difference is that um, the New World has never developed languages of its own, uh, English, Spanish, and so on. Um, but there have been uh, new kinds of, in, of indigenous um, uh, uh, influence arising within the Americas itself. One thinks of things like jazz and popular music, the skyscraper city, uh, and so on. So. Um, there are comparisons and contrasts, but I, this is getting very splashy and broad brush. I think I, I won't go further into it. Well, what have the Romans done for us? Um, few people uh, uh, deny the greatness of their poetry, um, they, uh, or, or, of course, their, the, the might of their arms. Um, they're acknowledged to be very good at law and main drainage. And... Um, Apart from sort of law and engineering and a bit of poetry, one view, Shelley's view, is, uh, is that they never did anything very much else. But in political terms, I think they have been very important because they be have bequeathed to us two models of government that have been important in the 2,000 years since. Uh, one is the mixed constitution. Well, actually, it was a Greek, really, uh, Polybius and Mara uh, of the Roman system who uh, developed this theory uh, the Roman um, Republican system wasn't democracy, it wasn't oligarchy, it was a mixed uh, constitution. Um, so uh, to Roman practice was given a kind of uh, theoretical uh, basis. And you know, to go back to Tocqueville and Pericles and all of that, they w would all uh, have <coughs> um, described what we live in as a mixed constitution, and I think they would have said that it was a mixed constitution that was rather more uh, oligarchic than democratic. The other model is what I would call Caesarism, absolute government, monarchy, autocracy, but based on a strong rule of law, the combination of those two things, uh, different from many other despotisms or autocracies in other parts of the world. So they had a political philosophy uh, and uh, interesting uh, and mostly enduring forms of political practice. But I believe myself that the, the person who thought most deeply um, about, um, uh, about nation 
uh, and about something, again, which the Chancellor was talking about very in penetrating terms, um, identity, was not uh, uh, a philosopher. It was Virgil. Uh, the Aeneid is a poem about a man who is searching for a city. Uh, it's about identity. It's about a search for salvation. It's a salvation poem. Uh, but salvation is found not uh, in the individual mind, which is where Lucretius, uh, Virgil's master, had found it, but in social institutions, uh, in land, city, people. And in his earlier poem, the great uh, agricultural poem, The Georgics, he'd explored this, the great vision of Italy, of unity in diversity, uh, of a sense of belonging um, uh, in two as a land and institutions uh, and, and shared culture uh, and experience. Um, and in many ways, I, you know, I think uh, the Eurocrats of our own day can learn something from this still about the, the necessity of sentiment uh, as part of the uh, establishment of a successful uh, political order. Now, the Greeks and the Romans developed a very absolute form of chattel slavery. Um, unfree labor of various kinds um, has been, uh, alas, a very large part of human history. But comparatively uncommon has been an absolute form of chattel slavery. Um, but that's what the Greeks and Romans had and uh, uh, was provided a model um, for American slavery um, much later. Against that, one can set the fact that the Romans, at least, were very willing to free their slaves and increasingly did so in large numbers. It surprised the Greeks. Uh, one of the kings of Macedon remarked uh, that this was an extraordinary thing, that the Romans not only freed their slaves, but they even made them citizens. And Roman citizenship uh, was one of the great inventions of Rome, the sense that anybody could um, hope uh, to be a Roman citizen. Uh, um, anybody, again, it's the question of holding a state. You know, anyone had the, the hope of um, um, holding a, 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 a stake uh, in their polity. Um, this was rather emphasized, if you saw any of Mary Beard's, uh, I thought excellent um, uh, programs on television about the Romans. She was rather um, uh, stressing uh, the, all these, these, these freedmen, people who'd been slaves and prospered uh, enough um, to, um, to leave inscriptions behind, uh, um, celebrating what they'd done and commemorating themselves. I, I think there's only one side uh, of a picture, much of which is a great deal darker, but it is one side uh, and not to be neglected uh, entirely. And of course, this idea of Romanitas, of Romanness, uh, is, um, uh, is extended into the idea of uh, Christendom, uh, and the Holy Roman Empire and all of that. And I think there is some evidence that the founders of, uh, of the common market uh, beginning of the 1950s uh, did have both Romanitas and Christendom uh, very much uh, in mind. And of course, uh, the papacy has taken uh, the title Pontifex Maximus, uh, uh, chief bridge builder, chief priest, uh, from a pagan antiquity uh, and uh, annexed it to itself, uh, claiming a, a rather curious and special kind of continuity. Now, there are things that the ancient world didn't do. I've never understood why they didn't invent the wheelbarrow. 
Now, inventing the wheel is a very difficult thing to do. Um, it's quite a sophisticated conception in itself, and it also is very difficult to make a wheel, so it's a surprising invention. But once you've invented the wheel, um, some Iraqi, I think, uh, sort of around about 3000 BC or 4000 BC did that, then inventing the wheelbarrow is easy. And however much slave labor you've got, uh, you can do more with it uh, if you have a wheelbarrow. Uh, why didn't they do that? I'm surprised they didn't invent the windmill. I should have thought they might have invented printing, which would have been uh, enormously useful to them. I'm slightly surprised that they didn't invent pedal transport. Now, I do realize that uh, the inventions of Tarmac Adam and the vulcanization of rubber uh, do help a great deal in making pedal transport useful, but you, you still could have done a, a lot with that. Why didn't they uh, invent those things? In a different realm, they didn't get very far in inventing representative institutions. There wasn't anything really much between oligarchy uh, which people spoke for themselves, and the mass democracy of the Athenians, that remarkable experiment which, which I was talking about earlier. But our conception in which we elect people who then represent us uh, is something that they never really got very far with. I suppose the heart of that is probably lies in England in the 17th century. Um, the, uh, the more recent rise of the West, something which may or may not be coming uh, to an end, uh, develops, depends on some uh, much later inventions, uh, printing, which I've already mentioned, mites in the 15th century, uh, gunpowder, scientific uh, revolution uh, of the 17th century, 16th and 17th centuries, and the industrial revolution beginning in the 18th century, uh, which is uh, still in progress. The Chancellor referred to uh, Neil Ferguson. Uh, um, his television series uh, talked repeatedly about the killer apps, um, which enabled uh, the West, on his account, to surge uh, ahead of other parts of the world from the 15th century onwards. That is another story. Uh, I've been uh, looking at uh, a few of the apps that were uh, developed earlier, and I think, uh, although sometimes put on the back shelf, never altogether lost. And now I come to an end. <laughs>